You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Joining me on the podcast today is Brian Loudermilk, one half of the musical writing team Kerrigan and Loudermilk. We talk about the nuts and bolts of writing and collaboration, as well as opening up about gender identity and the role of theater in being a voice for all. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. I think that from the beginning, I always had a lot of anxiety about not fitting in. I think that there was something about the musical theater kids that made me feel like I could fit in with the other smart, queer, weird kiddos around me. Well, thank you and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, a weekly podcast featuring conversations with creatives on the realities of a career in the performing arts. To join the monthly newsletter as well as take part in the Season 4 podcast survey, go to the website, whyillnevermakeit.com. I am so happy to be bringing on the third composer of the season. First, there was Georgia Stitt, then Andrew Lippa, and today, Brian Loudermilk a contemporary composer of off-Broadway musicals like The Mad Ones, Henry and Mudge, and The Woman Upstairs, all with lyricist Kate Kerrigan. As a team, they've both won the Larson Award as well as a Dramatist Guild Fellowship. And individually, Brian has received the Alan Minken Award and the Richard Rogers Award for Red, written with librettist Marcus Stevens. The Amazing Adventures of Dr. Wonderful and Her Dog was with Lauren Gunderson and was commissioned and produced by the Kennedy Center. Today's episode will mainly focus on Brian, but we'll also be hearing from Kate later on. Now, if you've seen or heard Brian on YouTube or SoundCloud, then a career in musical theater seems almost a given. However, years ago, Brian headed off to Harvard with a much different career path ahead. So one thing that I love about your story is that um, you weren't always on track to becoming a composer. You were actually accepted into Harvard, and I think we're going into math. And so what started this path or change of direction into composing? Oh, gosh, I can't imagine that anyone truly, when they're young, like really knows that they want to be a musical theater composer. But for me, it happened gradually. I I loved both math and music. Growing up, I first fell in love with songs by being around really extraordinary performers. When I was, you know, in middle school and elementary school, I went to, I grew up with Josh Young, who ended up going on to be nominated for a Tony Award. And so I remember sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this guy, has the most incredible voice. And he did. And I sort of found my way over to the piano so that I could figure out how to be in the room with people who were talented and who made me feel like I belonged. And uh, 
Yeah, I also really liked math. I really liked the sense of structure and organization. I loved that everything could be rationed out. I loved seeing the mathematical patterns in the structure of the music of Merrily We Roll Along. And so math just seemed really obvious. I got into Harvard, which was a really big deal for my family. My dad was the first person in his family to go to college. And it was it was a really big deal. I was not expecting to get into Harvard. It, it just kind of happened. I got rejected from like the University of Michigan's music program. Like it was just one of those weird things. I got into Harvard and couldn't figure out really how to say no. And once I was there, um, it also just felt like this enormous amount of privilege to be able to go to Harvard and then very odd to leave. Um, but during that first semester that I was there, I began because this like passion for theater was growing inside of me. I began reaching out to musical theater composers I admired in New York and sort of saying, what would you recommend? Like, how does one go about having a career in musical theater? And they all sort of said the same thing, which is that, Oh, you should, you should be very wealthy. Um, that's, that's one of the, the best things because no one's going to pay you any money for it for a very long time. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not very wealthy. How's that going to work? And I guess I got this idea into my head that um, if I was going to have to figure it out, I'd better start figuring it out soon. And so I moved down to New York uh, at the end of my freshman year. And I started working for one of those composers and or interning. And yeah, and I just started to get my feet wet and started to find my way around. Um I think that from the beginning, I always had a lot of anxiety about not fitting in. And um, I think that there was something about the musical theater kids around me growing up that made me feel like I could fit in with the other smart, queer, weird kiddos around me. And I felt really safe in theater and I felt really safe behind a piano. And so I just started working my butt off and... Um, just kept working from the time I moved to New York at 19. I just started working pretty single-mindedly towards figuring out how to make a life for myself as a musical theater songwriter. Now, many actors and artists pick up their lives and, and move to New York with dreams like, like you had. So it's a pretty big step for all of us. But for you, you, you left Harvard. And as you said, that's, that's very prestigious and, and an honor. So how hard was it for you to leave that opportunity behind? Uh, it was challenging. My my mother had a lot of trouble with it. She was really upset about that. I didn't talk to her for a good long while. And uh, yeah, and I felt like an enormous weight and baggage. I also felt like I knew that I needed to have that weight and baggage. I had this enormous fear that I wasn't going to do what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to be able to find a way to be in the rooms I wanted to be in. And so I gave myself this unbelievable weight. Um, so yeah, it was really hard when I talk to kids now who are trying to make these enormous life decisions at that age. I'm often giving them the advice that I never took, which is slow down, don't rush. There's nowhere you're trying to get to. There's nothing like there, there's there's no hurry at all. Um, and around the same time, I started writing a piece about a high school girl who doesn't want to go to the Ivy League college she's accepted to and who is struggling with a lot of anxiety. And uh, yeah, and that piece ended up becoming The Mad Ones and ended up being the first big piece that Kate and I ended up writing together and a piece that's traveled with me for a long time. You had mentioned that you found a, a home in theater. That was something that you hadn't been able to find elsewhere. And so writing music was almost uh, cathartic or maybe a way to, to get out your own uh, ideas and things you were working through. I wish that were true. I think, unfortunately, I fell into the narrative of being able to work your way out or through of something, that very American idea of, well, if you just work hard enough, if you just don't sleep very much, if you just, you know, do another draft, if you just keep powering through. Uh, I used to, like, not sleep at all. I was I was starting to sell my songs on the internet before I was 20. Um, I had my first, Kate and I had our first commission when I was 21. Um, 
I and Kate and I have been writing together for almost 20 years now, and I'm 37. Uh, so it, it all came very fast for me. I had this conversation with uh, the late extraordinary Michael Friedman a few years ago, where we kind of compared the different ways we got into writing. And he um, he was actually making fun of a musical he didn't know I had written that came into him when he was working in a literary department. Um, it's an absurd piece that I wrote when I was, you know, 16. And he was astonished to, to realize he was talking to the person who had written that god-awful piece. And he... Uh, you know, and and I was astonished to discover that he didn't write his first song until he was 25. And I think that there is something amazing about the fact that there are some people who, like Michael did, were able to just kind of observe the world around him and take it all in. And then when you're ready to sit down and begin, it all comes out as this perfectly formed authorial voice. For me, that was not the case. I had to write hundreds of songs before I wrote one that was any good. <laughs> what you said about Michael's impression of, of that, of one of those first pieces that you wrote. Criticism is kind of a part of, of what we all do. And, and it's, you know, I know many actors who don't read reviews because they take them too personally. However, you know, we as actors are only presenting the work of others. Whereas writers like yourself, you're, you're doing something that you personally created. How do you handle criticism in that respect? I think criticism in theater is actually pretty broken. There is an amazing new publication coming out, I believe in the fall, that's led by Julia Jordan and Sarah Rule that's going to be called Three Views on Theater. And it's specifically, uh, the tagline is, theater speaks in many voices, it's time for criticism to do the same. And so the idea is to have critics from inside and outside of theater to have other theater artists critiquing the work, which I think is so valuable. Um, the, the number of voices we hear from is kind of pitiful, and the agendas they have are questionable sometimes. So I, I'm really excited for the ways that, you know, people are dreaming of platforms like what they do at the New York Times Book Review, the fact that authors review other authors' work. I think that, you know, some of these musicals and plays, they can take a decade to develop. And I think that, you know, there's something to be said for people who have an awareness of a body of work and an awareness of the the depth of the art form to come in and to be able to take a piece and not just look at the merits of what your one evening of the theater is, but of how that piece adds to the canon, how that piece is in conversation with other pieces. So I, I have hope for the ways that people are going to say, no, thank you. I, I think that there are other models of how we share and expand upon work to audiences. Yeah, because I think the the ideal of a reviewer is that they're that bridge between the artistic in the weeds side of it to the audience who's fairly unknowledgeable of, of the history or maybe the work that goes into creating. And so I think that ideal of the reviewer standing between the two and introducing both to each other, I think is, is laudable. But you're right. I, I also think the the industry itself places way too much weight on that one New York Times review or whoever it is so that a show that has potential is squashed from opening night and then never regains steam. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that there's I think there's hope that especially right now with what's happening in the world, I think that we're going to have a chance to question some of what the pre-existing models in theater that we assumed always had to be there are going to be. Um, there are a lot of things that are sad about what's happening to our theater industry in quarantine. And there are some other things that are going to be like the good kind of pain that you need to go through so that you come out new. Yeah, I do think that it's interesting going through uh, quarantine and having physical theater seasons closed and not being able to to go and interact with theater in that way, that now we're presenting things that are online and things that are more virtual. There is a space for that that has been largely untapped. And because theater is such a, a very visual and interactive medium, I think it's it's good that we're exploring these ways of doing it virtually and still inhabiting the artistic vision of whatever piece we're doing. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I'm in the incredibly fortunate position of having um, made my living primarily off the internet for 
most of my career. Like I have a career in theater thanks to kids in the Philippines who think my songs are dope. I have a career in theater thanks to young directors who just like staged productions of my stuff, despite the fact that they weren't licensed yet. I owe anything I have as stature within theater to the fact that everything doesn't have to be about the few voices who are able to break through on those couple blocks in New York. So I, I, I of course feel very optimistic about what might happen. And as someone who's like feeling profoundly anti-capitalist these days, I can't help but just like root for a complete reimagining of how the finances of shows work, how criticism works, how, um, and how we get to the new voices that we so dearly need to hear. Yeah, I mean, theater is, you know, along with that oldest profession in the world, I think theater is like the second or third oldest. <laughs> so th- there's certainly room for it to be updated and for entrepreneurs to come in and take over the space in a new way. Yes, we need to destigmatize sex work and we need to um and we need to fix theater criticism. Though that's that's what's on the checklist after today, I think, Patrick. <laughs> Now, with your writing, do you find yourself going for that kind of activism? Do you use your own writing in that way? What a great question. Um, I feel like in my projects with Kate, we've tried hard to um, elevate voices that we wanted to hear from, that we have tried to get voices in the room. I think that um, I'm one of the things I'm most proud of in our writing is the is are the stories we've told that have strong female protagonists and strong female sporting characters. And the fact that, you know, when uh, the cast album to the mad ones came out this fall, one of the things I saw someone posting about it that made my heart swell a little bit was saying, Oh, like the, these duets between these two girls were the first duets in theater that were two girls singing together that didn't feel like it would, that, that were, it wasn't about like an offstage boy. And I think that obviously there's reasons why I've always felt, felt safest collaborating with female writers and why I've been drawn to writing strong female characters. But I, I'm, I'm proud of the, I'm proud of that body of work. I think commercial theater is really, tricky. Shows take a really, really long time. I'm excited for what people are making next always. And I think there are a lot of different ways that one can be part of that machine of like whatever commercial theater is and also be helping. Now, for the most part, Kerrigan and Loudermilk have not been a part of that big commercial machine. They have charted a a very unique and artistic path all to themselves. But they have certainly found success in large part due to the internet. Their very first album, Our First Mistake, charted at number one on the iTunes singer-songwriter chart. And their YouTube channel has videos that have been viewed over 9 million times. Brian also started a YouTube series called From B, all about traveling and writing songs in real time. And Kate is an award-winning librettist and lyricist, with plays that have been developed at Page 73, Primary Stages, and Chautauqua Theatre Company. So while Kerrigan and Loudermilk have remained a strong team together, they also value collaborating with other artists branching out beyond their roles as just composer or just lyricist. So I sat down with both Brian and Kate separately to talk about their long history together since childhood. Well, so Kate and I have been best friends since middle school. Um, It's unimaginable. We have a lot of shared tastes, which I think is incredibly important for a collaboration. First and foremost, if anyone out there is thinking about writing with someone, highly recommend. And one of the the greatest gifts you can give yourself is to find someone who has coordinating tastes with you. I mean, Brian and I have a shared history in that we both grew up in the same theater community and we had a lot of the same reference points and the same productions that we could even talk about as kids. Uh, which is an interesting kind of shared history. But it is nice to be able to find something that you both agree on. There's definitely things that I like that Brian doesn't like. But when we're working together, we're looking towards those reference points that are kind of 
interconnected and the things that we both believe are good. It's something that like when I teach, even when I teach a writing workshop, I sit down at the beginning of that workshop and I say, okay, what are all the things that we as a collective um, agree on? What do we think makes good storytelling? What do we think we hold this up to a standard that all of us agree to? And we all think this is positive. And um, it's not just about having it. It's about being able to name it and being able to work with another person to establish and then grow of philosophy that you're building. We've also proved that um, our collaboration and friendship can weather enormous changes in identity, geography, and lifestyle over the years. Uh, I'm polyamorous and married in my romantic life, and I feel like Kate and I sort of have like a similar partnership where we're committed to each other, and we also acknowledge that having new interesting voices in our work will inspire us and only make us stronger. We're always like kind of bringing in things from outside, and I feel like my identity as a theater writer shifts constantly in one project I can recognize the thing I can most do in the room is to be really structurally minded in another I can find that the best thing I can do is step back and write the music and in other times I take a step forward in lyrics but um, I think that also comes from having a long-term collaboration with Kate where you know sometimes it's the two of us sometimes uh, we've done now like three pieces with uh, the playwright the extraordinary playwright Lauren Gunderson and you know it's it's different every time, and, and it should be. Um, I believe that neither love or creativity are finite resources. There's been studies about how in marriages, um, when, uh, when one partner dies, uh, a lot of times the other partner doesn't know how to do certain, like they actually fundamentally have lost certain skills because they relied on their partner for those skills, and they could be emotional skills, they could be um, connected to math skills. I definitely lean on my husband. My husband's like surprisingly good at arithmetic and like quick math. So I just don't try. <laughs> and, um, but if I'm in another setting, I'm actually quite good at it. But I think that that's true with all collaborations that like, if you don't use a skill, you don't, you're not growing it. Um, so if you lean on someone else to do it, then that's not the skill you're growing, you're growing different skills. Um, and it does allow you to grow these other skills. But um, but I think that the moments when Brian has probably grown the most as a lyricist are moments when I'm not around. And the moments when I grow in terms of like my understanding of music and composition is when Brian's not around. <laughs> It's a marriage. It's a. It's everything, and I feel so lucky that someone I've known since middle school. I think we've met. We met in elementary school. It's. It's amazing to go on that journey with her, and to and my collaboration with the writer Kate at eighteen, and the writer Kate at twenty five, and the writer Kate at thirty five. Like those are all different people and different collaborations too, and that's part of the joy of it. And the collaborations that you've had with other writers like uh, Lauren Gunderson, as you mentioned, also Librettus Marcus Stevens. So it's pretty much like you and Kate have an open relationship when it comes to writing. Yeah, absolutely. A thrilling, awesome, open relationship that's constantly sparking new ideas. I also think like we make, yes, we're theater makers, but primarily we make musicals and musicals are so intensely collaborative, you know, there's, there's sort of no way to get one done without at some point having to be in someone's head that is remarkably different from yours. So you're there with a set designer trying to explain how, um, how the show needs to move inside of itself. You're there with a lighting designer trying to talk about like the color palette of what it feels like inside your story. And even just on those first meetings, when you're talking storybook and lyrics, you're trying to genuinely connect people across disciplines. It's it's amazing that that we're able to do that. And I do think that we all benefit from having different kinds of voices and ideas in the room. Lauren is this like science person who comes in with these Google Docs filled with like facts and figures and sometimes little drawings and things. And it's like it's phenomenal, but also I wouldn't have done that research. <laughs> I've been working with one composer who she doesn't set lyrics well. That's not her thing. She, as long as you know, you have the plan for the song, you know what the hook is. Um, she will give you an entire song back with no lyrics on it. And there will even be moments where I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is exactly right. But then once I set lyrics to it, I'm like, yep, that's that was right. That was great. And she just has this strange 
ability to do that. And I don't know how she does it. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it works really well. And it's completely different from the way that Brian and I work, which is much more, uh, we start from the idea for the song and then one of us takes a little piece of it and sees if we can take it somewhere. The other responds to that. We go back and forth and back and forth until we have a full song. Now, with any of the people that you've collaborated with, was there ever a, a time or two where the, the, the heads just butted and it's like you just couldn't get around or, or see each other's viewpoint? No. I mean, we tended to have these, we, we haven't done it as much lately, but we tended to have these like annual retreats um, that we would mostly just kind of sit around and talk about how the year had gone, what we wanted for the next year together and what we'd learned. And there was one of those years where I think we really codified for ourselves that anytime we have a major conflict, it's most likely that we're both right. And we really stick to that. We've had songs that take six months to write because we're fighting about what they should be essentially on the page. And those have ended frequently as some of our songs we're most proud of. I think that we're always trying to do something that is the best of what she can do the best of what I can do. And if Lauren's in that picture, it's the best of what the three of us can do. If there's a director in that picture, like you want something that you can all step back from and say, yes, we made this and it satisfies everything we all want. We're both in the best idea wins camp um, and we'll fight pretty hard for something if we feel really strongly about it. But I've also, I think I've also learned to let things lie sometimes because you're going to write so many drafts of something. And I think that as a younger writer, I could get a little bit more dogged about being convinced that the way that I saw forward was the way forward. And as I get older, I, I think I've gotten more flexible on that. Like there's something we wrote recently that two we're, we're working on it with another writer and two out of three of us um, think it should be one length. And then I think that the pacing's off. I think that it's too long. And I think we'd be better served by it being tighter in this one space um, and like potentially losing an entire song. And I might be right or I might be wrong and we won't know for a while. And so me fighting for that right now is completely unuseful because we haven't done a reading. Um, It's very difficult to recognize that you might be wrong when you can't understand how someone else might be right. And that happens sometimes when you're writing. Sometimes you don't, you don't see the other person's perspective well enough. You don't get it. And it's really eye-opening to find out that sometimes it still works. And the majority of those things are not going to be things that is going to make the audience care more or less. And so letting those things go a little bit and seeing what happens and trusting that you've got the right people around you and that their opinions are as valued as yours always is such an important part of trying to collaborate together. I think probably most frequently asked questions of of writing team is, okay, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? How, How do you and Kate work that? Um, I try and always change up what my writing process is. I spend a lot, I usually like to work from having like a song title. We'll often come up with a song title before a couple words that feel like the thing that sum up the emotional life of that song, the emotional world of it. And then sometimes I'll go away and set that. I'll come back with a groove anything that can spark, um, the other person to understand what's in your head. Um, and that little dance of trying to show someone without going too far, Kate will write, you know, a little stanza, and then I'll write something based on that. And then we go back and forth. The only time we ever do like completely music first or completely lyric first is if we're in a hurry. Um, we are capable of writing a pretty good song in 15 or 20 minutes and we do. And when we do, it's usually, okay, Kate passes me a lyric and then I set it in a few minutes and we're done. Or I just write some music and Kate writes, like, like we're both very good at those skills. But at this point, we don't spend very much time talking about the craft of songwriting, which is the thing we know how to do very well. We spend a lot of time talking about story and character and team building and the ways that we can get at hard to get at ideas. But there's places where 
I think having some space and some quiet is also really useful. I think one of the other things is that for a composer, being quiet is really, really hard and kind of impossible. Um, so everything you do is kind of always a little out loud and a little bit in front of everyone. Um, so I think it's very helpful if a composer can have that um, ability to work in front of other people. But for me, I do better if I can like turn, put the headphones on and get a little quiet and get that work done. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like, you know, page through words and like figure out the exact number of syllables. And there's something very, very intricate about that work. It just moves at a different speed. It doesn't flow in the same way. Yeah, I had uh, composer Georgia Stitt on earlier this year, and she mentioned something I'd never thought of. But she has those four or five, I guess, archetypes of, of melodies or ways that she writes and finds them, and she can just write something within those confines. And then as she works on it, it becomes something else. Do you kind of have those go-tos when you're first writing music? No, I actually... Well, first off, I'm obsessed with Georgia Stitt. Georgia Stitt's amazing. And the fact that like I love her as a songwriter is like a fraction of the things I love about her. The community organizing that she does with Maestra, like she's just such an extraordinary human. That's all about Georgia. But And so if you haven't listened to George's new album, it's amazing. It sounds like it was written in the past couple weeks. All of the songs are so deeply relevant. So there's a big plug for George's album. She's incredible. What was the question? <laughs> so, so. <laughs> I get so, so bored, Patrick. I really, really do. That might have been what happened with math is I just got bored. Um, but I, I'm someone who the second I find myself sitting down and playing the same chord I played before, I'm out. Um, but I'm always like, I learned to play the guitar a couple years ago. Cause I, I like, I get bored at the piano. Um, I was traveling for like a year and a half at a, some point with no access to a piano. And so that really changed up my writing process. I've had scores that I was like, you know what? I have to go back and write these melodies by hand. Like I need to do this the old school way. And I find that it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me from repeating myself. It might make other people frustrated because they're like, write another song, like, run away with me. But I just, like, you know, all of the artists who I most respect and emulate, like, they, no one wants to, like, repeat themselves over and over again. Brian is somebody who's always learning and always growing and always looking for the better way to do something, which can sometimes lead to us going like a roundabout way to find the better way. Um, and like, I'm like, there is a path over this way that's pretty simple that we could just take. But, um, but it is really exciting that there's always that look for what hasn't been done. Is there a more efficient way? Is there a new idea that hasn't been discovered? And I'm sure that you were kind of leaning on past composers. Are there ones that, you know, like, like George, are there other ones that, that inspire you, that you kind of took your own inspiration from? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a Janine to story, like, addict. I'll take any Janine to story I can get in all forms. I think she's extraordinary. Um, I grew up on, I grew up on Sondheim shows like everyone else. The only piece of advice he ever gave me in my career was that I was misspelling my last name. He told me that there was supposed to be an umlau and the, 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 the crazy thing about it is that I'm certain he was right. Like it's unbelievable to have the confidence to tell someone they're spelling their own name. Right. And also I, I immediately was like, yeah, for sure, Steve, you're definitely correct. I'm sure now. So I've been spelling my name wrong forever. Um, yeah, Janine is Janine is incredible. Um, you know, I'm really thrilled that Michael R. Jackson's show just won the Pulitzer. That's absolutely thrilling. He's incredible. I love all kinds of people who are making things in theater. And do you see yourself as one of those people to be looked up to? Who does anyone see themselves as someone to be looked up to? Well, I, I think at this point, Stephen Sondheim realizes, okay, I've inspired enough people. I get it. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm someone who is exceptional at crafting a certain kind of melody. And that's something that I put my 100,000 hours into. And I know how to do that. And I know how to do it well. And at this point, I'm more interested in what I can use those skills for. Um, I'm excited by some of the community organizing I've been doing. And like the queer sing-alongs I've been hosting in Philly. I'm excited about like... Um, I'm Again, I'm proud of what New Musical Theater has done. And I'm proud of... Um, 
news I can't announce yet about like the ways that the Mad Ones is going to be made available for folks to do in their homes and to, I think it'll be the first di- musical completely licensed digitally. Um, so that's really exciting. And I think that there are a lot of little writers who for some reason really, really gravitated towards Kate and my songs and became writers themselves. I'm really proud of that. I'm really, really proud of that. I think that's really exciting. And I think that um, it turns out if you tell a certain kind of story and you um, kind of look at certain kinds of characters and say, these are worthwhile characters to turn a lens on, these are experiences worth writing about, um, people will be grateful for them. So within that odd little universe I've existed in, in internet musical theater, um, I think that the work I've done matters and I'm really, really grateful for it. And if anyone out there made a video to any of my songs and did something with it, like I see you, I saw you, like you're the thing that keeps me going and keeps me trying to get big old weirdo musicals produced by commercial producers. I'm not good with words, but that's nothing new. Still I have to try to explain what I want to do with you, with you, run away with me, let me be your ride out of town, let me be the place that you hide, we can make our lives on the go, run away with me, Texas in the summer is cool, we'll be on the road like Jack Kerouac, looking back, Sam you're ready, let's go. Well, now I want to turn the lens uh, a, a bit more personal. And you identify as a queer, gender non-conforming musical theater writer, and your pronouns of choice are she and her and they and them. Why are these designations important to you? Uh, someone said something very interesting to me recently, which is the thing about pronouns um, is that you don't have to think they're important. Uh, and like, I don't have to explain what's important about pronouns and you don't even have to use my pronouns, but it's important to know that by not using my pronouns, um, it just makes you look like an asshole. (laughs) And that that's like, I think sort of the most important thing that one can take away from it. Um, I don't know that I can explain what's, um, I I don't know that I can explain what gender dysphoria is. I don't know that I can explain why someone's discomfort with having to adjust their language is less valid than someone's experience of gender dysphoria. But I can say that um, a great thing to do for people who have those kinds of questions is to ask someone who's not trans (laughs) about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I can also say that um, my brother-in-law has been someone who uh, I found it really meaningful when he was talking about putting his pronouns in his uh, email footer at work. He works at a progressive nonprofit and someone at his office made fun of him for it. And, um, and I think my sister just by default rolls her eyes at her husband all the time because that's what she does. Um, They're both, amazing humans. But, uh, and I was thinking about it and I was thinking that honestly, it is so great that his email footer says he, him in it, because I would much rather that someone make fun of him than me, you know? Mm. (laughs) Um, I've been out as trans in, in some other circles in my life for a while. And I've only recently begun coming out in professional theater. There aren't a ton of trans and non-binary folks in theater, the industry, um, especially in commercial theater skews old and cis and white and Casting processes are filled with identity landmines. The way that gender and race are discussed in casting rooms and rehearsal rooms and marketing and development meetings is changing, but it's not changing fast enough. So I I feel like using people's pronouns is pretty much the least we can do. (laughs) What has that journey been like for you to then come public with something you've been dealing with personally? 
Someone said to me recently that one of the confusing things about coming out as in as trans in pretty much any industry is that you immediately go from someone who is a student, a novice, someone who's trying to figure out really essential questions about themselves to being someone who immediately feels like they need to become an advocate, someone who immediately needs to be a role model. And basically that, you know, after a few years, you're um, you're a, a trans elder, that that's that that journey takes that short of amount of time. And uh, yeah, that's been really overwhelming. And also it's felt meaningful. And uh, I hope that people seeing me as out and people want to make fun of me, like I'd rather it come on me than like a 20 year old actor who's coming into the room for the first time. Um, Kind of like, honestly, like my brother-in-law putting his pronouns in his email footer. Like I, I really would like for theater to be safer in a lot of different ways. I'd like it to be safer in terms of mental health. I'd like it to be safer in terms of like financial stability for people who work in theater. I'd like it to be safer for people of color and I'd like it to be safer for women and for a whole list of people. And it feels like one of the small things that I can do is to show up as my full authentic self in service of that. Yeah, because for for decades, arguably even centuries, the, the arts have been a home for the marginalized. It's been a place for, for people who may not have had a voice elsewhere could write something or perform something or, or be in that space. And while it's never been perfect, and certainly Broadway is an example of, of that imperfection, um, was theater for you, was it a place that you could find and express that identity in a way that had you been in another profession, you may not have been able to? I don't think so. No, (laughs) I think that theater promised to be that in certain ways, or I certainly thought it did when people were first singing in rooms. I feel like there was something about being constantly in conversations about whether someone was butch enough for a role or someone was too fey for a role. I think that whether some talking openly about whether actresses are too fat for a role and body image, I think that I, I think it's been a really, really long time since theater ever felt genuinely safe for me. Um, I don't think I've been on a project in four or five years where an actor hasn't dropped out sometime during the process for either a health or a mental health reason. And I think that's pretty common. Um, the, the thing that we're doing is not an essential service, but it is a deep reason as to why we are here. Like one of the things that society is built to do is to allow us to create art that engages and, and shows us a mirror of our society. And we can't do that unless people feel truly safe to show up to work. Um, but honestly, I do think that me being reluctant to come out as trans has did set me back quite a bit in terms of like how I've been able to show up in theater. Um, I think the idea that someone isn't trans enough has been kicking around in me for a while. I also think that imposter syndrome has been very, very real in me and something that I see in so many like amazingly talented people around me. I, I don't know why that's so end- endemic or why we're so bad at making artists feel good about the things we're doing. That's not the job of criticism to pat you on the back and say, good job. But at the same time, there's part of me that wants to pat my my hand on the shoulder of every single human who made a play this year and say, good job. You made a play. Think of all the things you could have done instead. And you made a play. You know, would that be so bad to just (laughs) really let everyone feel appreciated? Um, So, yeah. (laughs) I absolutely agree with you. But as you were saying that, it made me think of, of the larger question. And this is something I don't necessarily have an answer to, but it's certainly something that I'm seeing as I go to shows more, as I talk with writers and creators like yourself, there's obviously a balance that need because sometimes the color, the gender, even the size, the, all these physical characteristics matter in a particular role. And then other times it, it doesn't matter. It could go to anyone. And 
I think there's a balance to be had, and I and I I think that people of of reasonable and and caring minds are trying to find this balance of knowing when it's important to make that statement of a particular thing, and when it's like you know anyone could do this role. It, do you find yourself in the things that you're writing thinking specifically about that? No, never. All I ever do is write for really interesting voices. And, like, not always theater voices. Like, and I never understand why I'm not allowed to cast someone with an extraordinary opera voice who weighs 300 pounds in a role. Why does it, why, why can't the best person who's the best performer and the best singer always play the role? I don't understand why that should ever matter at all, ever. And I understand that, like, there are certain roles that are by Black authors that, like, should be written and performed by Black. Yeah, of course. But, like, like mostly, mostly, can't we just like allow people who are the the best performers and and who have like interesting perspectives and interesting lenses on things? Like, I just why do I ever need to see like a, a production of a Roger Hammerstein Rogers and Hammerstein show like with a gender fidelity cast? Like, why do I why do I ever need to see that again? Who the fuck cares? Now, in, in things that I've I've read and 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 you know interviews that I've seen, uh, they there's been some pushback against a you know a colorblind or genderblind casting, and that because some people want to feel that identity, they want to know that identity is being listened to and adhered to. Do you think that that is important sometimes? It, it depends what it depends what piece we're talking about. Like there there are obvious I, like of course I don't want to see white folks in a Hamilton, but like I really like I, I really do not care if the person playing Maria in Sound of Music is cisgender. I really could care less. And people need to not be precious about vocal keys ever. It is so easy to change the key for every song and it will not ruin your score ever. Ever. Like, it's it's not Wagner, and Wagner was a Nazi, and like, you know. <laughs> so obviously with the things that, that you and Kate write, you specifically try to leave every character open to the interpretation of that of that production. Yes, in the pieces we've been doing more recently, we've been trying to figure out how to get more specific. It's an ongoing struggle. Um, we're, it's so hard not ever being able to talk about the pieces I'm working on. Uh, but they're, but one of the pieces I'm working on, like, um, uh, everything is being very specifically designed towards um, there being non-binary people in the show and the ways that that's being discussed. There's another show that we're working on with a playwright of color where every character's ethnicity is very specifically named, but it's also with an eye towards that possibly changed at a different point. It's, it's a really hard line to walk and we have real struggles that we need to figure out about like how we most make, um, make theater reflective of our society and answer the big questions we need it to answer and to see ourselves in and we just don't have time for the bullshit of like back backroom politics and like the shitty ways that people talk about people and we just we just don't have time for the we don't have time for the bullshit um so i and so i no i think that anytime you're getting into a conversation about like exclusively colorblind or exclusively genderblind casting like that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about like the stupid shit where where like an excuse over why we have to be faithful to a text that was written 20 30 years ago being an excuse for why we can't see it through the lens of how our society looks today mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think Hamilton for for at least the the, the racial component I think was a, a great example of how using race but also going against what has normally been done is is still commercially viable and and can still reach a mass audience because I think un, until then there weren't I I can't even think of any piece that kind of turned race up on its head that had such a wide appeal. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited. I've been doing some free master classes with the uh, 2020 musical theater graduates who were all graduating from musical theater colleges this year. And 
they're it, they are they are extraordinary performers. They have extraordinary um, energies and voices, which I like very much. And they also, you know, a lot of them are there. There are those in that group who are gender nonconforming, who are trans, and who are non-binary. And I'm really excited for when they start showing up in audition rooms and on our stages in different ways. And I'm really excited for the ways that we are going to accommodate them, and for the ways that the shows we're doing are going to be better for it. A very big thanks goes out to Brian, not only for being on the podcast, but for being so open about a journey that has been both successful, but also challenging. Brian is certainly leading the way of a new generation of writers and composers that are feeling empowered to tell their own story in a way that is not only meaningful to them, but can resonate with an audience and can provide new insights and shared experiences for them. And speaking of being a voice for the future, you too can lend your voice to the direction of this podcast. Huh? You see what I did there? Nice segue. The podcast survey is going on right now. I did one of these last summer, and I'm looking forward to your feedback as far as what's going well and what's going not so well with the podcast. I'd love to hear what you think about this podcast, these guests, as well as myself. You can find that survey at whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, that does it for this episode, but stay tuned for my further conversation with Brian as we go through those final five questions. I'm ending the podcast today with another snippet from my conversation with Kate Kerrigan. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, reminding you that the reasons for not making it may seem arbitrary and frustrating, but the reasons to keep on going are even more numerous and rewarding. Let's get together next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Uh, Brian's an incredible storyteller. She knows how to find the largest part of the story in a way that I, I think is rare for a composer to care that much about the macro structure of a plot. But it's something that like someone like Stephen Sondheim does really beautifully. Um, a lot of composer lyricists care a lot about that, but it's rare in a composer. And I think it's incredibly valuable. And I think having someone else who's focused on that means that I can deal with the details and make sure that it all works. Um, but knowing that there's somebody else there who cares about that stuff. Um, the other thing is that Brian writes extraordinary melodies and it's really catchy and really beautiful. We both have an element of being a chameleon. We're both able to mimic other people's voices, but I think in a way that is not just actual imitation, which I think makes us good, a good fit for each other. Uh, and we talk about both of those things at the same time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.